I hustled my way here. I'll figure out my way when I get out. You can't make a difference if you're broke. Now we're going to talk about something that I would consider a little bit controversial. Just like a tiny bit. (laughs) Here we go. I think lawyers have forgotten that we represent people. Absolutely. You have to do what people want. It's not about you, bro. Okay? Like, lawyers need to get over this. It's not about you. If you're not ready to eat shit and keep moving, you're not ready. If you want to be successful, you're starting a law firm. You have to network and you have to do social. The networking works with the social media and the social media allows you to network. We're all going to be someone's ancestor one day. Make them proud now. In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make lawyers great can be some of the worst for running a business. At every stage of growth, running a business and practicing law can feel overwhelming. And what happens when you try to add life and family to the mix? It can feel nearly impossible. You do not have to do this alone. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRank, a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week we hear from the industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, from marketing to manifestation. Because success lies in the balance of life and law, we're here to help you tip the scales. Mohammed Ramadan, founder of Attorneys of Chicago, is an immigrant and a fighter. Unwilling to accept no for an answer, he has grown his firm from the ground up. His firm represents hundreds of personal injury clients. Today, Mo and I dig into reaching your goals by any means necessary and the power of guerrilla marketing coupled with, you guessed it, social media, why money matters to your firm, especially if you think it doesn't, and why you should own who you are proudly at all times. Mo gets personal about intake and moving beyond survival mode. Mo did something a little controversial. He started his law practice right out of law school. But to understand his decision, you have to understand his history. First male to go to college in my family. I started off community college. I had like a 1.8 GPA and didn't really know what I was going to do. By just sheer luck, I got into DePaul. That's kind of where things changed. I met my mentors there. At that time, law school was still kind of like a pipe dream. It wasn't something that I really thought I was going to do seriously. Started doing really well at DePaul, and then it kind of became serious. So I worked my GPA up. I took the LSAT. I did just enough to get denied by all eight law schools. All eight denied me. Michigan State came, gave me a conditional acceptance and said, hey, if you come in early, you do well enough, we'll let you in. I said, it's my one shot. Took it, got in. Um, You know, I was bottom 20 in my class. I was never always great in school. But, you know, I looked at it. I said, I hustled my way to this point. I'm playing with house money. I don't belong here. I don't even, I shouldn't really be here. I kind of beat the odds to get here. So, you know, I was coming out. The legal market was crap. I was bottom 20 of my class. I didn't come out of a top 100 law school. You know, I'm going to just be honest. You know, my name is Muhammad Ramadan. I didn't have a family with connections. I really had nothing. And I looked at it and I said, I applied for jobs. I wasn't even getting interviews. So the writing was on the wall. Right? And I just kind of knew, okay, when I come out, what am I going to do? So about probably my third year of law school, I just kind of knew, you know what? I'm just going to go on my own. And... It was controversial um, when I met with um, whatever they call them, the people that you meet with at law school before you go. 
So the first thing she says, she's like, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Chicago. She's like, well, everybody wants to go to Chicago. I'm like, lady, I live there. My family's there. Like, I'm not going there because of the, you know, because uh, I, I want to. I have to. She's like, okay, well, what are you doing for jobs? I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go on my own. She's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, excuse me? I said, yeah. And we had a very, very back and forth. I'll just say that. And I kind of just told her, look, I'm not asking you guys for anything. Just stay out of my way. You know, I'm not really asking for anything. They actually sent the dean to have dinner with me. No, dinner. Dinner. And we sat down and she brought it up and I said, look, it's a crappy legal market. All due respect, you guys are not doing much to get us jobs, which is fine. Okay. I get it. It's tough for everybody. But what do you want me to do? Go sit and do doc review for $30 an hour and not learn anything? And I said, you know, I hustled my way here. I'll figure out my way when I get out. And that's kind of what I told her. They still didn't like it, but whatever. I came out. I passed the bar the first time, November 14th. I'll never forget the date. I uh, raised my hand. I got sworn in. December 1st, I signed my first lease. Wow. Yep. That's crazy. I just dived right into it. And who was your first client? $50 $50 traffic ticket. <laughs> um, so how I started, I actually, when I passed the bar, we had a little party. So I literally, it was just close family and friends. I told all of them, do not give me a little BS monogrammed little folder. Just whatever you were going to spend on a gift, please give me the cash so I can open up the office. So I made, I think, a little less than three grand. Uh, it was my security deposit. It was my rent. I bought a desk, a computer, some uh, pens and notepads, and I had a few hundred dollars left, and I went and bought a suit uh, from one of those sales stores, and I would literally just get dressed in the morning, go to the courthouse, and walk around. But you had no experience. Weren't you worried that that was a liability? Yeah, so what I did was the office I took was a joint office. There was three, one, two, three, four other lawyers there, relatively younger, but they had some experience. Did they think you were nuts? No, because they kind of did a similar thing. You know, I didn't just dive into, I kind of not so much did my homework, but I tried to build as much of a safety net as possible. And these guys were kind of my safety net. Now, some of them were only out for like three years at the time. So it's not like they were experts, but it was enough to know how to file an appearance, um, how to research or, you know, basic stuff. And it was kind of like a co-op almost. It was really cool. It was like, all right, if I learned something, hey, man, I went from the judge so-and-so, I went on this motion. Oh, let me get that case, you know, or let me get the motion that you used. And it was really like a co-op for a couple of years. We just kind of helped each other out. How did you find them? One of them was a good friend of mine. Um, you know, so he helped me out. He was about two, three years ahead of me. Um, so he was kind of advising me how to get into law school. I didn't come from an area that had doctors and lawyers. I mean, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I never knew a lawyer personally. I had no concept of the LSAT. I had no concept of college. I'll give you a funny example. When I got to DePaul, I didn't know 100 level, 200, 300 level. You know, when you apply for classes, that 300 level is like the hardest. <laughs> so I'm looking at the list and I'm like, I don't know any of these classes. And I saw Mideast Politics at, it was like 300 level. I'm like, oh, that's my people. I should know this stuff, right? I didn't know 300 level was like the highest level class. And I just totally bombed that class. So just to show you, I didn't even know how to apply for college. So he kind of helped me with that. And I explained to him what I was doing. He's like, hey, we're getting this office space and there's extra space. And I knew the guy that kind of rented the place out. Um, so I just, I said, you know what? It's better than nothing at this point. And then what, what happened next? So the first, I mean, first six months to a year, I would do traffic tickets, uh, 50 bucks. I would try to get a hundred. Someone still negotiate me to 50. Uh, I'll never forget that. And then 
what I would do and how I really kind of grew was I would do covers. So criminal defense attorneys will tell you sometimes you have to be in three different courthouses, four different courthouses, all at the same time in the morning. So they would say, hey, Mo, we'll pay you a hundred bucks, go to this courthouse, get us a court date or go to this courthouse, get, pick up discovery and get a court date. So I would do that for multiple attorneys and at the time I was doing it to make that extra hundred bucks, 200 bucks. And it was literally like, okay, today I made 200 bucks. Cool. Gas is covered for the week. I can get some food. All right. Next one, I got to pay my rent. You know, it was literally day by day. I would try to do it. And the covers really helped me. One, I, I started to network with other uh, attorneys Two, you start to learn on someone else's not dime, but I can't really screw it up. Right. And if I screwed it up, lawyer I'm covering for will fix it and they can always just blame the new attorney. So the pressure wasn't as much. I got to know judges through that. They start to recognize me and see me there. I started to get to know and have a relationship with prosecutors. And also I would go cover and then I would just pick up other clients when I'm there covering for another attorney. And I learned very fast the five second rule. You have five seconds to impress a client before they decide they want you or not. Your handshake, your business card, and how you're dressed and how you looked. You knock those three out in five seconds, you'll get someone to hire you. And that's what I did. I would just put on a really nice suit. Um, I, I spent a lot of money on nice business cards because I had to, I hate saying fake the funk, but I had to have a nice business card to make it look like I'm experienced and I have this firm. So I spent on business cards. I bought a couple suits and I would just make sure I'm shaved and cleaned. And whether people like to admit it or not, that stuff does matter. And oh, I learned, absolutely. I love fashion, so I'm going to agree with you. Me too. And I'll, case in point, I had a guy, my first felony, it was a, a low-level felony. I signed him up and I asked him, I said, hey, man, why did you hire me? He said, man, I'm going to be honest with you. You were the best-dressed dude in that courthouse and it looked like you know what you were talking about. I said, deal. <laughs> you know, I'll take it. And that's when I learned that stuff does matter. I would call my sister in court and act like she's a client. And I was just walking around acting like I'm talking to clients on the phone. I would just go into different courtrooms, act like I'm looking for clients. And sure enough, people, hey, 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 I got a question for you. Hey, can you help me out real quick? Or, you know, and then I learned how to take people's bond money. So if they didn't have cash, I'd say, okay, cool. You got 300 in bond, slide that bond over to me and, you know, I'll take care of it for you. And just little by little, just kind of built it up from there. Are you still doing criminal defense? No, I stopped criminal defense five, six years ago, maybe. How many active cases do you have now? <sighs> A couple hundred, I want to say. So from no one will hire you to couple hundred active PI cases. PI cases. So I did criminal defense hardcore for about five years. And when I say hardcore, I mean guns, drugs, attempted murder, murder. So my trial experience came from the criminal side. Did you handle sex crimes or no? No. Um, I knew you were going to say no. So look, when you do criminal defense, you know, you cannot get on a moral high horse, right? I would listen to someone on a sex case, a child case, I would not even give a consult to. See, I knew it. I, I feel like I already know you. And the reason is I don't think I would ab I would have been able to give them my 100% defense. And if I can't give you my one, you know, I, I'm very passionate on my clients. So I told myself, it's not fair if you're not going to give them your 100% because they might be innocent. 
So if they are innocent, they deserve 100% from an attorney. They're not going to get 100% from me. So therefore, don't even come to my office. I mean, I would say it nicer. I just, with children, I just, it was just something, even if you were innocent, I just couldn't do it. That was, but that was the only thing I wouldn't take. I mean, you name it. We and did. when did you switch? When What happened? Did you get like one PI case and you're like, holy shit, there's money here. No, or? so that's a good question. It, it was pretty organic over a span of time. So I was doing criminal defense hardcore. I really thought I, and I wanted to be the, like the next Arab Johnny Cochran. Like he was my idol growing up. I really thought that was what I was going to be. Of course, it didn't work out that way. I think it was when I had my first daughter. I had my office in the city and, you know, I was getting to a point and anybody that litigates knows this feeling you know, you're so tired all day from prepping for court or being in court. By the time I came home, you know, I didn't have much for her. And I I said before I even got married, before I even became a lawyer, I never wanted to be that dad. That was a big thing for me personally. No matter what work I did, I did not want to be that dad. And when I mean that dad is that dad that's working six days a week, 12 hours a day, only sees their kids a few hours out the week. I said, I don't care how much money you can promise me. I'm not giving this up for that. And I said, cool, right now it's okay, but when I'm 55 and I'm 60, do I want to be dragging myself into court for misdemeanors and felonies? And the answer was no. And the system sucks. It wore me out. I got tired of fighting the system. It's very racist. It's very biased. I got, you know, uh, prosecutors are very self-righteous people. Uh, they, <laughs> they just, they live on a high horse and it just really got on my nerves. And then, you know, I, I would, it's draining. I would spend a year and a half defending a guy. I'll never forget it. I defended a guy in attempted murder. We got him off. Great. It was one of the big wins of my career. Not even a month later, he calls me, caught another murder. Oh my God. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, dude, what did I do all this for? <laughs> like, I lost sleep over your case. I blood, sweat, and tears into this. And it was just like, do I really want to do this? And then I did a double homicide. I really liked the kid. It was a 17-year-old kid. And it just started to pile up. And I said, hold up. And then I started really doing well on the business side. Chicago is a very regulated city. So I ended up just somehow, some way, I would I started representing businesses that were getting attacked by the city of Chicago. Interesting. It's right. And I said, wait. I get the chance to fight Chicago and give them the finger? <laughs> Sign me up. Let's go. So uh, they tried to railroad one of my friends. At first, I'm like, no, no, no. I'm this big, bad, badass criminal defense attorney. We don't do admin law. And he just kept calling. He's like, Mo, please, please, please. I said, okay. And I looked at it and it was like, they're really crushing this guy for no reason. So I ended up fighting it and I won. And I'm like, oh, okay, it was pretty cool. And then my phone just started ringing for that from all these businesses getting ambushed by Chicago. So that started to do well. And I said, okay, I want to get rid of criminal, but I need to supplement it with something. That's where PI really kind of came in. I started noticing how many cases I was referring to other attorneys. And I started to think, hold up, I'm pretty good at this marketing thing. I bring in cases. How do you bring in cases? Old school guerrilla marketing. And when I say that, I'm in the streets, I network. I've done a great job of what I call planting seeds, doing stuff for people without asking for anything in return. If I seen people that I know opening up their own business, I would go to their grand opening. Sometimes I would be the 
one of three or four people. And guess who they're going to remember? Oh, you. One of the three or four people at their grand opening. And I realized just making human connections. Do you think that'll ever go away? No, never. That's just a human nature. Like technology these days have just given you different vehicles to do that. So when people say, well, you do well on social media, how do you? I'm like, it's it's hand in hand. The networking works with the social media and the social media allows you to network. So you kind of have to use both of them. And I, and I used both. So I got into social media because I was broke. Literally, I had no money to market. It was like three, year three. I said, man, dude, I need to do something like cool referrals are cool. And at that time, referrals were on and off. You know, right now, referrals are flowing. But at the time, three years in, you know, referrals were up and down. And I said, man, I have to do something. But I'm like, I'm broke. I don't have any money. I can't do a billboard. I can't do, you know, any ads. So I, I literally just went on my personal Facebook page and I would just tell stories about my defense clients. And my friends laugh at me because I would t- make them totally dramatic, right? Like, oh, this poor woman came to my office and, you know, she was going through all this and we went into court and we smashed the prosecutor over her head and we got this verdict. And I kind of did it facetiously at first, just kind of joking and people loved it. I said, hold on, I'm onto something here. And I just kept posting. I got a lot of crap for it. Lawyers still give me crap for it, the older attorneys, but back then a lot. What do they say? Oh, I was a detriment to the legal world. I was unprofessional. I was ghetto. I was, I've been told stop making rap videos and get back to work. I mean, I could go on and on. But the worst one was when they said I was a detriment to the legal world. That's crazy. Yeah, I thought that was great. I thought that was pretty funny. And I did a video once, uh, you know, I'm from Chicago. Kanye West is very big. I did this video. It was like a hype video. It was just me. I rented an Uber black and, you know, I put on a nice suit and I did the Kanye West power beat. And three days in, I had 60,000 views. I said, holy shit, I'm onto something here. So I started doing these videos with music in the background and people liked it. And I started noticing, well, this is brand building. And it really hit me when I would, I would, be somewhere and people are like, hey man, I saw your video. When are you going to do the next one? I was like, oh, I don't know. Like <laughs> random people on the street? Random people that, you know, from the community and they would say, man, I love that video. When, when are you going to do it? When's the next one coming out? And in my head, I'm like, I didn't have one planned, but oh, yeah, it's coming next month, man. Don't worry about it. Just be on the lookout for it. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to do another one. So it was just little things like that. But when I say guerrilla marketing, yeah, like anywhere I go, you're going to know I'm an attorney whether you like it or not. Now, you can't be overt about it, right? I I slip it in within conversation or I'll try to tell a good client story of a result that we got. You kind of have to be subtle and slick about it. But, you know, for lack of better words, I kind of grew up on the streets, so I knew how to hustle and I knew how to get what I wanted. I always knew what I was good at and what I was bad at. What are you bad at? I'm not a great writer. Speaking, I, I think I speak well, but I still have a little bit of the immigrant South Side kind of talk. So that was always self-conscious about kind of my speech. Like, I'm not going to write a 30-page brief. I'm just not. That's just not who I am. Uh, what I am good at, though, is I moved around a lot as a kid. I've lived in every kind of neighborhood, every kind of community. So I feel one thing I was always good at is I can relate to pretty much anybody's situation due to the fact that I've literally lived poor, rich, black, white, you name it, I've lived around it. So I used that skill. And luckily for me, because we moved around a lot, I knew a lot of different people from different neighborhoods. So I knew Chicago politics, meaning in Chicago, neighborhoods have certain people. And those people 
are the credible people. So if, you know, so-and-so says Mo is legit, the whole community is going to believe Mo is legit. So I would find those people in those communities, and if they were doing events, I would go to them or I would sponsor them and I would do stuff with them and just build from that. And honestly, just doing good work. People will talk about you if you do good work. So it was just kind of a combination of things, but it was really just hardcore getting out in the streets and letting people know what you do. How many employees do you have now? Five and then myself. So six, six of us total, five staff. What are your goals? My goals, sorry, Larry, but I want to be the guy in Chicago. I say that jokingly, but what I really want to do, honestly, I, I want to show the new model of a law firm. And I think the legal world is really changing. And I think the old guard is having a hard time with it. The old guard, when I say that, is people do not care for the old white guy in front of a bookcase anymore. That was the prototypical lawyer for the past hundred years. I think women are kicking ass right now in the legal world and they're doing it differently. I think women are resetting the standard. And the reason I use women is because I think they've broken, not the glass, but they don't give a fuck no more, right? In a sense, if I want to wear a bikini on my Instagram, I'm going to wear one. If I want to be fashionable on my Instagram, that does not make me less of an attorney. If I want to be cool or if I want to do certain events, I'm going to do that. And I think lawyers have forgotten that we represent people. Absolutely. You have to do what people want. It's not about you, bro, okay? Like, lawyers need to get over this. It's not about you. You represent somebody. So... People want to know who you are now. People do not go to your website first uh, right away. What they do is they're going to see, who am I meeting? What kind of person are they? Do they go to concerts? What do they like to eat? What are their interests? Well, people like to work with people. That they can relate to, right? And I think the legal world for a long time has been this kind of picture-perfect image of a suit and tie, and you're perfect, and basically you're a machine. I've shown my vulnerabilities to people and they love it. And women are good at that. I do think women are more vulnerable and they have a lot of empathy. They do. And I think that's, I agree with you. I think that's changing the space. And I think we have television to think for this idea of a lawyer, right? Everybody mm -hmm. has an idea of what a lawyer is. Perry Mason. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's Perry Mason, yeah. Yeah, of what, because of TV. And now because of social media, We've had so many lawyers come out and do all these videos and put themselves out there. And people are like, wait a minute. I thought that lawyers looked a certain way and acted a certain way. And I think social media and opening up your own law practice has allowed women to flourish in our industry where otherwise they would have to, quote unquote, wait their turn. That never came, right? I mean, go look at the number of women partners in big firms. Oh, it's... They're crap. And you cannot tell me women lawyers... Aren't they good? I mean, go look at the law school numbers. Women outnumber men in law school numbers now. I think women are better employees too. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I just do it. 1,000%. My Thank entire you. staff is almost all women. Yeah. And yeah, I don't let me go on a tirade on that. I, I do think uh, women are just, uh, they're, they're loyal, they're organized, they're just hard workers. You know, and I don't know if it's this whole chip on their shoulders shit that people say. I don't know. But Who half, cares? Half Who my, cares? The point yes. is women are amazing employees. And, and they're attorneys. smart. And, dude, of course. Yeah. Half, uh, more than half my referral base are women-owned law firms. And I love that they're, that's growing. It is. Women should 
go start your law firm. And I've asked women attorney friends that I know, they've told, told me, they've noticed between the generations. So the older generation still talks down to them, still says certain words to them. The younger generation are more prone to being totally fine with working with a woman attorney. So I think it is shifting, but social media and programs to show you how to open up your own law practice, I think... Most lawyers should open up their own law practice. That's my belief. It's, it's so liberating. But I think some lawyers just don't want to handle the business side. Because they suck at business. Well, that's why. But <laughs> Most lawyers suck at business. And especially, I would argue, and I don't want to say that everyone is like this, but I think that there are lawyers that are so passionate about being lawyers that running a business almost feels like it's, A, what they're not interested in, or B, it's like almost like beneath them. It's like, no, I want to make a difference. And that's when I say, well, partner up with someone that's great on the business side. I've heard that before. And here's my response to them. You can't make a difference if you're broke. No, or if you have no clients. If you have no clients, you're not making a difference, right? Yeah. So like you said, outsource it then. Like it's a cheap cop out when lawyers say that because I respect the fact as a lawyer that you want to do good work and you want to fight the powers that be. I'm with you 100%. But there is a business to law, whether you like it or not. And client acquisition is a very difficult thing, as you know this very well. Client acquisition in 2022 is extremely difficult. And getting the clients one thing, then your operation side is completely different now. And in today's world, if you're not responding to clients right away, if you're not giving them different options to communicate with you, Firms like myself and the newer firms are going to blow you out of the water because we're responding to our calls. You can DM me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. You can text my office. You can email me, if WhatsApp if you want, whatever you want. It's I the number one complaint. By far, number one complaint. Doubt. How and it's an easy fix. It's so easy. But I think lawyers' egos get in the way. That's my opinion. You and I have talked a lot about lawyer egos. Yes, because it's a detriment to our industry. I really do think it's a detriment to our industry that those comments, right? You know, that's about the lawyer. I want to feel self-righteous. No, dude, go bring in clients. That's how you make a difference. But this whole, I just, you know, oh, it's not about the money. It is about the money because you need that money to funnel the work that you want to do. So what I do is, you know, yes, we're a money-making firm, but I do a lot of pro bono work, right? Making money has allowed me to free up time to go do the pro bono work that I really like and I enjoy. So it's like, you know, build that firm up. So now for me, it's like I get to double dip. I get a firm that I've built how I want it and I get to bring in people that I want to hire and I get to use that brand and that money to funnel into projects that are pro bono for me. So that's the win-win. I live by the Jay-Z quote, you know, um, you can't help the poor if you're one of them. So I decided to get rich and get back. That's the win-win. <laughs> Right? You know, I, I really believe that. You're, you're the American dream. I am. And I take pride in that. And I don't say that in an ego way. I say that to say the American dream is still alive. I just think people are lazy as fuck. They are. That's the thing that I think immigrants, we feel like we have something to prove. We do. And that drive. And I, I worry about my kids. I'm like, you guys have no adversity. And I've said this in other episodes, like, I'm like, should I create some adversity for them? Like, It's tough. I, I battle that all the time, right? Because I grew up poor. It was eight of us in a three-bedroom apartment, you know, first-generation immigrants. My kids will never see any of that. They have a, you know, we have a nice house. They go to good schools, you know, get every toy they want. Part of me is like, I don't know. I mean, I want to give them everything I didn't have, but, you know, 
how do I instill values in them? But like, I don't have to make them broke to instill values, do I? I don't know. It's a tough balance because children of immigrants were raised differently. You know, my parents didn't come to no basketball games and football games that I went to. And, you know, they didn't we, know any better. We had no extra <laughs> I don't blame them. They didn't know any. They were, you know, immigrants are in survival mode 24-7. And this is what I tell people. We are different in a sense because the moment we get here to the moment we die, we are in survival mode. That's all we know. Survive, survive, survive. So while we're in survival mode, we forget about building generational wealth and, and all of this. But a guy recently said something that really hit me and he said, hey, we're all going to be someone's ancestor one day. Make them proud now. And it really hit me that we are going to be someone's ancestors. Someone's going to say, my great-grandfather created this wealth for us. I want to be the great-grandfather. So we are going to be someone's ancestors one day. What are they going to say about you? I mean, I keep telling my kids I'm not leaving you anything. I mean, it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that that panics them a little bit. But my husband rolls his eyes, and I think they're, they're on to my lie. But. Yeah, it's, it's tough. But, uh, you know, so what I do is I, I try to get them involved in things. And, but it is a tough balance, especially when you grow up with nothing and you start to have something. You, wanna, you don't want to give your kids the experience that you had. But same time, those experiences have made me the hustler that I am today. I that built what I built today. My kids, can they go through that? Isn't it weird, know. though? It's like the things that were so difficult are now such a blessing. I didn't go to a school more than three years of my life. Why did you guys move so much? We're broke. <laughs> and we just, you know, apartment to apartment. We left the city to try to get away from a lot of the shit that was going on there, but couldn't really afford to live in a good neighborhood. So you would just try to find your way. And we just, you know, just how immigrants do it. I mean, we just, we kept moving uh, to try to find a better place and... And again, I, when I was a kid, I hated it because as soon as you get acclimated, boom, you know, you get up and move. But I've literally lived in all Middle Eastern neighborhoods. I've lived in an all black neighborhood. I've lived in a Hispanic neighborhood. I lived with poor white. I'm talking poor white. I've lived around rich whites. I've lived around almost every socioeconomic Where do you class. live now? <laughs> I am a full suburban. Uh, I golf now. <laughs> you know, my wife laughs if she's like, you're like a middle-aged white guy now. <laughs> I'm like, you know. You're a but, lawyer. Right. I've, I've always wanted to golf. I never golfed, so I started golfing recently. I never fished in my life until a year ago. I've never fished. I've never golfed. I was dying. I've and never I don't want to do either. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in a city. We didn't have nature and all that. And I, it was something I've, I just always wanted to fish. It's weird as this sounds. I never went fishing. So my, my friend's a big fishing guy. We went on a charter and I absolutely loved it. Like I, I really loved it, but would I have, I loved it at 21. Probably not. Do I love it at 38? Uh, I, I loved it. And you know, I, it, it's progress, right? Uh, not know. perfection. Thank you. It's all about progress. And that's what I try to tell younger attorneys. They're such in a rush to just become the next Ben Crump or, you know, whoever it is. And I'm like, bro, Ben Crump's been practicing for 30 years now. You know, like you don't become, and I'm just using Ben Crump as an example because he's a, a recognized name. But people always ask me, especially younger lawyers, you know, what do I got to do to start my own law firm? And I said, start it. <laughs> If you're not ready to eat shit and know how to eat shit and keep moving, you're not ready. But see, that's what your childhood taught you. Correct. And Ali and I have talked about this, like the lack of grit that people have and the, the laziness that does exist in our country. And it's a shame. 
I think. And I hope my children aren't lazy. You know, there is some of that, but I also think they're just trying to do things smarter. You got to understand, we didn't have this technology growing up, right? No. So, you know, we, we had we to had do MySpace something. We were how old ne- with MySpace? I can say this publicly. I never had a MySpace account. I had MySpace. Don't ask me why. I was probably the only one in America that didn't have a MySpace account. I was never into tech like that. I didn't use Facebook till I got to college. Uh, but when I was on Facebook, it was literally just for college students. Uh, but that's yeah. when I saw I didn't go to college, though. So. I had to wait for, till they opened it up to everybody. Uh, <laughs> that's when I really saw the power of social media. I was at, 10 years ago, 2008, I was in college. But that was when I, I was trying to get some notes because I missed class and I couldn't figure out how. My cousin's a big tech geek. He's like, man, go on this Facebook thing. I'm like, the hell is Facebook? He's like, just sign up. He helped me sign up. I put a message out. I forgot how they did it back then. Within an hour, I had five people respond to me with notes. I said, holy shit, dude this is out of this world. Like, this is unreal. Like, this really happened? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm telling you, this is really cool, right? I'm like, yeah, like, what's this email thing about? You know, like, I was still new to it. Um, And I laugh and I tell that story because now my entire practice was built on social media. I've done no traditional paid marketing. Zero zip zilch. Which is crazy because this seems to be a theme. Networking and social media. And I keep hearing these two things. If you want to be successful, you're starting a law firm. You have to network and you have to do social. A lot of the legal world still does not believe in social media, believe it or not. It's crazy. And it boggles my mind. I don't know if people know this. TikTok is now overtaken Google as the no. largest search engine in the world. Officially. I think I heard this recently. That's crazy, That's though. That's insane. I don't TikTok. Huh? So I don't personally... TikTok, I've gotten better with it, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's a must. Whether you like it or not, it's the largest search engine in the world, and you, and you have to get over certain But what things. do people search for? I, you're the guru on that. You tell no, me. I don't know. I, it's really funny because the first time, there are two times that I felt old with technology. One was when my little cousin told me Facebook was for old people. The other (laughs) was when I tried to do a TikTok and I ended up messaging Tally Goody. And I was like, I don't know how to Uh, use TikTok. Can you please walk me through it? um, You get used to it, but you know, TikTok's its own animal, man. Like I'm still learning it. I'm more of an Instagram guy. I am Um, too. Instagram Instagram. is my jam. Me too. I think it's a, it's a great medium. Um, Not a lot of haters. Like, TikTok commenters are the worst. Oh my God. The comments. I don't have any haters. I'm not big enough for haters. Oh, trust me. I'm do sure it. I have real life haters. <laughs> I know who you are. Do a couple TikToks, Maria. You will see the comments. So now I like play with them. I, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I've heard enough crap in my career where like these things don't bother me, but so I like to just kind of mess with them. But uh, just to give you an example, I did a video on like, I think um, three steps to do after an accident, something like that. And one of them was, you know, call the police. And these guys from like India and like Australia and I, are like going off on me. Well, police don't come to an accident. I'm like, bro, I'm talking about Chicago. Like, I don't know what happens in India or Australia or, you know, the UK. Like they were so offended by it. And I just responded. I'm like, dude, I'm talking about the United States, not even the United States. I'm talking about Chicago. Like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. Like, I don't know what happens in India, but you got to learn to just roll with those punches. Like, just don't even respond to it. I do sometimes just to be an asshole and just kind of have fun with people. And I start to realize people like the smart ass response comments because they would go like it. So you kind of, but you got to have thick skin, man. If you don't have thick skin. Oh, I have thick skin. I know you do. I'm talking about other attorneys. 
I think attorneys care about their image a little too much. And I think that's just like humans in nature. Like you have to, mm-hmm. right? If you're a human, you're going to care to some extent, but to the extent that it inhibits you or I guess prohibits you from doing something like putting yourself out there. I don't get that. I think too many lawyers are scared of not looking lawyerly. Whatever the hell that is, I, Which I hear that we all just the time. Agreed that that's changing. It's it's completely changing. But there's st- in law schools t- taught you this, and then when you come out, the law firms taught you. You know, here's my controversial statement, and, and you can play this: law schools are built for large firms only. They do not train attorneys to be attorneys, and do, they do not train attorneys to be small and medias, medium-sized firms. They do not. They literally teach you to be a robot for the major firms. That's the first problem is law school. Law school has not changed since Abraham freaking Lincoln. Okay, it's the same test, the same method, the same, literally since Abraham freaking Lincoln was taught as a lawyer. Well, I've never had a lawyer ever say, oh, I learned so much in law school. Every single lawyer says that they didn't learn really anything in law school. I learned how to think. I had great mentors, so I was lucky in the sense, but my mentors taught me how to think like a lawyer, how to view things. But- I mean, Maria, like you said, I came out, I didn't even know how to file an appearance in court. Come on, you're they telling me really... after three years of law school, I didn't even know how to file an appearance. Now when I look at it, it's the most simple task you can do as a lawyer in court. You literally, in Cook County, is how it is. you go up there, you grab the half sheet of paper, you write your name, your information, you give it to the clerk and hope she doesn't chew you out for walking up to her. That's it. I didn't know that. I didn't you know, know how to file what would be super cool? If somebody, like a group of lawyers said, you know what, we're going to start a law school and it's going to be different. Obviously, they have to- The like, cartel mm-hmm. won't let you. I, uh, I'm sorry, the ABA. I meant the, <laughs> uh, the ABA. I call them the cartel. I'm sorry, the ABA is a cartel. You know, here's what pisses me off about the ABA. You have a bunch of lawyers who never ran a law firm trying to tell us how to run our law firms. It blows my mind. And I don't really care for the ABA, the ARDC, all of them. You know, lawyers are so scared of them. I tell them, I don't really give a damn because I don't need some uppity tight guy who's never ran a law firm in some office in New York telling me what I can and can't do. You've never been in, in, in the field with us. And things change and evolve so fast now that your rulemaking is so behind. So like, if you got a problem with it, we'll deal with it if you have a problem. That's how I deal with the ABA and ARDC. It's probably not the best advice for young attorneys, but there's so many issues with the legal world that they just do not want to address, and it's a detriment to younger attorneys. Maria, you know how many young law students or attorneys, young attorneys I speak to, and every single one of them at the end of it says, man, thank you for being honest with us. Nobody's honest with us. It blows my mind. It's like, why? Why are the lawyers sugarcoating this stuff for them? Let them know the hard stuff too. And then they go out to the real world and they're like, oh shit. And they get this crushed. Is not what I expected. Like no one's setting the right expectations. Now tell me, what is the biggest issue that you're working through at your firm right now? Scaling. So we're growing very rapidly, which I'm really happy about. So I'm in the scale stage. I don't practice anymore. Um, I'm full blown, just kind of building mode. And I'm trying to be cognizant of not scaling too fast. My intake's not where it needs to be. So subcategory would be intake. Intake. Okay. Let's talk about intake. Let's talk about intake. Um, I could do a podcast just on intake. You could 
do an encyclopedia set <laughs> in takes. All right. I learned through people like you and others in the industry. I, I was about a year and a half, two years ago. I had some extra cash. I, we, I did well. And I said, you know what? I want to dump this into some marketing dollars, right? So I thought, okay, I have all this money. You know, it's not a ton of money compared to others, but for me, it was it was it was a good chunk of money. So I, I hired a company to do like uh, PPC, and I was doing these paid ads, and I was getting nothing. I lost at least fifty, sixty grand, okay, within a span of a couple months, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to my law firm because it made me stop and say, hold on, dude, you don't know as much as you think you know. Go back to ground zero. And God bless YouTube and Google. And I realized my number one issue was intake. I don't care how much you can bring in on lead gen. If your intake is not converting it, what do you have? You have nothing. It's funny because everyone tells me their intake is great. You're probably one of the only people that right away were like, yeah, no, my intake's not great. Everyone's always like, oh, I have the best intake. Every single, for oh, that's not an issue. Oh, that, no, 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 well, our intake's great. Uh, okay, well, when was the last time you listened to a call? What do you mean listen to a call? Well, don't you record your calls? No, why would I do that? <laughs> to listen to your great intake. Oh, no, but, you know, Billy or Annie, they've been working forever. They, they, they know how to do this. And I'm like, just like, all right, okay. Conversation for another day, you right. know, because it's just, it's crazy to me. That's the first impression. And if you're leaving anything on the table, I mean, you could have left $40 million case on the table. I still do the intakes till today. I'm in Vegas now. I did an intake Okay, this you can't scale that way. It's not permanent though. Right? No, I know. So I know. I'm the type, and I learned this, before I take that responsibility to give it to someone else, I need to know it through and through. Oh, totally. So I'm working through my kinks and issues now. So that's why I'm doing it. So I can figure out where are we weak or how many areas are we weak in? Why are we weak in there? What do we need to do to change it? Okay, let me implement this. All right, is it flowing right? Once I feel that it's completely flowing and that they can do it, I have no problem relinquishing that duty. So what are you doing right now to make sure your intake is solid? Um, me being knee deep in doing intakes, um, that's one. Just researching, honestly, right now. This is why I'm not in a rush to do a lot of other things because I'm still learning intake. Intake is very intricate. It's, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And I really want to, I hate to use the word perfect it because intake's always going to change. As society changes, your intake should change. That's that's how I view it. While things change, your intake will always have to change. So I don't think you're ever going to have a one, one stop, one way of doing intakes. I've built my operations side. My team is amazing. I I cannot speak highly enough of them. They're just amazing, super loyal, hard workers. They believe in the team, which I've 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 done a good job of building the team concept in a sense. You don't work for me. We all work for the office. And the office works for clients. And if you keep your focus on the clients and their satisfaction, everything else falls into place because then they're referring, you're making money, your office staff gets raises, they get bonuses, you know, it, it trickles you're down. You're getting reviews. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, we've been stressing that now uh, more, getting the review. I don't know if it was you or someone else I heard. It was a really good tip. Uh, they said, ask for the review as they're picking up their settlement check. That was probably me. Yes. But I, I'm not the only one that says that. So, so and I... And I, I stress that to my team now. Hey, so-and-so's picking up their check. Just make sure they do it from their phone. 
From their phone, yes, phone. correct. Okay. Um, we definitely do that. We have them pull up their phone. And so I'm learning those little things. Intake is about minor things. There's no big thing to do on intake. Empathy, I'd argue. Correct. I seen it somewhere and I forgot what it was. You know, language matters. Like in my office, I don't use the word employees. We're not, the only time employee, the word employees used in my office is for payroll tax. We're staff, we're team. And believe it or not, as corny as it sounds, that's helped because we've bought into the team and they, they understand. I don't look at them as inferior to me. You know, the other day, for example, I, gave you a person, I have a friend of mine, she has a case. So she just texted me for an update. I gave her the wrong update because I just looked at the screen wrong or something. And, and she's like, Mo, stick to negotiating. Let your <laughs> staff handle this. And I'm like, you're right. You know, this is, I, I know my lane. Call, you know, so-and-so and she'll tell you everything you need to know. And I feel you. It was a great moment for me because I'm like, I finally delegated. I'm comfortable delegating. And they're doing a better job than you. Great job. Look I mean, that. it was an amazing feeling from where I started to now to be able to have my team do better than me. That was a proud moment for me. Yeah, that was a very proud moment. And what's next for you guys? <sighs> it's a good question. Um, I'm beefing up our social media. Um, that's our biggest thing. We're You've gonna, been doing great. You can always do better. But I'm going back old school. I'm going to do a lot of street networking and doing events and doing pop-ups. I think that stuff really works. I don't care for traditional marketing right now. Maybe down the road, you know, we'll pop up some billboards, but I think billboards are more of a brand building thing. But again, why spend all that on billboards? You know what I can get with that same amount of money on Facebook ads? It's the same concept to me. So building up my social is kind of the biggest one. And I want to kind of build up our, our previous clients and do more for them. I think getting them in, doing nice dinners and those things really go a long way because if someone refers you to my office, they're locked and loaded. I don't really have to sell myself anymore. Like when you mentioned there are different types of intake. Well, if it's a referral, that's a very different intake than Correct. someone just found Cold you. calling you. Correct. Yeah. So I do a lot. Of, I mean, I do a lot of community work, so I'm big on that. So I kind of want to do a lot more with that. So now that I've kind of freed myself a little bit, I do want to do a little more in the Philip. Uh, I can never say the word. But Philanthrop- I can't say it either. Yes. This is the immigrants. This is the second <laughs> second language. Can you say it? <laughs> yeah, three immigrants in a room. Nobody can Nobody's say philanthropy. Say you guys know what we're talking about. But I really love that stuff. I really do. I, and I think every lawyer should give back at, at, on a certain level. And I think we don't, as a legal industry, do enough to give to those that really need. And I'm not talking about the guy that calls you and wants a discount. I'm talking about the disenfranchised, the 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 voiceless, the, the ones that really need it. I think lawyers should be the ones fighting a lot of these things that are going on. And I think, um, you know, we should be that. And I think we should give back more. Start where you are. You don't need to be the best in the beginning. Find your mentors and hustle until you reach your goals. Let your personality shine. People buy from people. And the stereotype of a serious lawyer in front of a bookshelf is not doing anyone any favors. As your firm begins to grow, understand your strengths and your weaknesses. Hire people to fill in the gaps. Thank you so much to Mohammed Ramadan from Attorneys of Chicago for everything he shared today. If you found the story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy. 
president of Loring. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity, and built a thriving, purpose-driven business in the process.